There is an order to life. Have you ever noticed this order? It goes from everything is great, everything sucks, and then everything is back to great again. Have we seen this? Yeah? Good, horrible, back to somewhat normal. You could even call it this, order, disorder, reorder. This is the pattern to life. So here's how it went back in March. Carrie and I were celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary. We decided, hey, it's been 10 years. Let's get a couple days or about a week free of our lovely children. And so we put a bunch of food around the house and left, and they just handled themselves. Uh, and so, but we, we went to Hawaii. This was the end of February, beginning of March. It was wonderful. While we were there, we kept hearing these news reports that there's something brewing. And we're like, eh, we're in Hawaii, past the Mai Tai. And so we, we kept just ignoring it because it didn't bother us yet. And so then we were, we were driving up to the North Shore, and all of a sudden there's a, a text string of just lead pastors. And it's somewhat informative. Sometimes it's annoying. But uh, it started going through are we going to cancel church? And I'm like, what is happening back in Seattle? This is ridiculous. I texted Jen, who's our associate pastor, and said, don't cancel church. Just don't have people shake hands. You'll be fine. So we went along, and church went fine. Then we come back, and it's like March 5th or 6th, and all of a sudden, it's like uh, everything is starting to close down. And it went from paradise, literally, to we're stuck in our homes. We used to, like three days ago, we had a view of palm trees in the ocean. And now we have a view of our backyard, which at that point I hadn't done anything to it, so it looked bad. And then we were there for a while. And now we're still kind of in this disorder. Have, you guys probably have your similar stories of the times that in the past eight months where it's been great, all of a sudden it wasn't. And now we're kind of in this section where we're like, what's going to happen. This pattern, we see it, isn't just in our life. It's, it's all through scripture. Genesis 1, creation, beautiful. Now, fall, and then the reorder pointing to Christ. We see it in people's lives. We see Moses having a grand old time in, in the, the, the palace of the Pharaoh. All of a sudden, he's at the far end of the desert, and then God begins to reorder and bring him back into the promised land. You see it with David. We see it with Paul. All of this pattern that we have in our lives of order, chaos, reorder. We find ourselves in the midst of the chaos now. There's reports of the second or third wave. We've seen videotapes. We've seen riots. We've seen economic freefalls. We've seen cities on fire. We've been forced fed fear from every angle and the elections on Tuesday. It doesn't seem like anything is going to get any better anytime soon. We have this pattern in our lives. We have this pattern in our society and this reordering of our chaos and in the midst of chaos is one of the reasons that we've decided to take some time, especially in this season now, I'm tired of the word unprecedented, especially in this season now, to look at the story of Joel. Because this small book of Joel, though it's sometimes, there are the lights, sometimes it's, it's ignored because it's one of those scary books in the middle of the scriptures that we don't have anything to do with. This story of Joel speaks volumes to our situation. 
Joel is this biblical author who was uh, completely immersed in other scriptural writings. In his writings, we see the other prophets like Obadiah, Isaiah, Malachi, Ezekiel, Zephaniah. These are all books of the Bible. Amos and Exodus. Joel loves scripture. And because of this, when Joel reflects on the scripture and looks at the chaos of his day, he's able to have a perspective in the middle of it that gives him hope for the future. We don't know when Joel wrote it, but we do know from the very opening point of the verse that his dad was named Ethuel. He wasn't royalty. He wasn't famous. However, Joel's name itself stood out from everybody else in his world. The name Joel is two words. It would have been Yah, because they don't have a J in Hebrew. It would have been Yah El. Yah is short for Yahweh, the name for God. El is God. Yahweh is God. So here's Joel's mom calling him for dinner. Joel, 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 come home, come home. In the middle of this society that's bathed in idol worship, human sacrifice, false gods, she's yelling from her doorstep for Joel to come in from playing and saying to everybody around, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. So Joel's even name is a light in the middle of chaos because in everything else, Joel is saying, God is God. Yahweh is God. And Baal or Molech is not. All in all, what we see in our time and the same in Joel's time is that he addresses these patterns of what do we do in our disorder? What do we do when we're in the middle of chaos? And so we're going to look at Joel for the next three, four weeks. And Joel is mixed with this idea that just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that everything is going to be peachy in your life. The social gospel or the the health and wealth version of the gospel says that if you have a right relationship with God, you're going to avoid all the hard times. Joel says that's not true. In fact, following God is not an escape from the difficult times, but perspective in the difficult times. Sometimes in life is difficult. Sometimes we dip into disorder and chaos. We live in a fallen world and God's ideal isn't all achieved. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes they're because of consequence. Sometimes it's just random things. Storms start to brew in the south, and all of a sudden they move up, and then another storm converges, and then you have a tornado. Sometimes earthquakes happen. Sometimes disorder happens. This is a part of life. You're not going to get around it. And so Joel helps us get perspective around it. The book of Joel gives us three signposts that we're going to look at today that will enable us to find hope in the middle of our difficult times. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Joel. It's in the middle. If you find Amos, you're getting close. I bookmarked it because I cheated. It goes Amos, Hosea, Joel. If you have your app, so much easier. Just search Joel. The first signpost that we see is this. Don't avoid the difficult times because you can't. You can't avoid them. Look in Joel verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll go to verse 4. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell to their children. And to their children into the next generation. 
What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. So Joel is writing this, and it's locusts, and you're like, why is locusts a problem here? This is written to an agricultural society. Locusts have the tendency to come in and wipe everything out. And there's nothing in that day that they can do about it. Very rarely did nations have a stockpile of goods that would sustain them through this kind of uh, natural disaster. And then you look in the, line of the last lines of verse 2 and 3, and what it says is, ask your ancestors about this. Because no one has ever seen anything like this in their days. In fact, ask your ancestors and make sure you write it down to tell your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and the rest of the generations that come. Nothing has ever happened. For Joel's culture, this type of swarm was uh, unprecedented. There's that word again. This type of swarm had never happened. Locust swarms to them were the same thing as an economic plague and pandemic to us. When locusts hatch... In a swarm like this, you would have four to 5,000 locusts in a square yard. There's a lot of them. When locusts swarm like this, they devour everything, then they ravage the culture. You can search online. There's a locust swarm ha happening right now uh, over in Western Africa, the top part of Africa, into Iran. And they're just everywhere. And they ravage things. They don't go away. And trying to stop them would be the same as us getting a fly swatter out and going like this and hoping we're going to stave off 5,000 locusts in a square yard. Carrie and I have one of those electronic fly swatters. They're awesome. That wouldn't even help in this. This is unavoidable. You're not going to get away from this, Joel is saying. And then he says this. The first swarm is the cutting locusts. Then the second swarm is the swarming locust. Then the third swarm is the creeping locust. And then the last one is the destroying locust. There's four different words for locust that the author uses here. And what he's saying is there's just wave upon wave upon wave of this destruction that's coming. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. All of them are coming, and you're not going to get around this. In verse 5, the wine supply is gone. And all of you wine drinkers go, oh, man, that's huge. It's like someone drank all the whiskey. Verse 6, the farms will be destroyed. Verse 7, the trees will be taken. Verse 9, the grains are gone. Verse 10, the ground is destroyed. The new wine is gone. The olive oil is useless. Nothing is growing anymore because of these Locusts. Verse 12, the fig and the apple and the pomegranates are gone. Life as they know it, says Joel, obliterated. And then he ends with the worst outcome of all. Verse 12, and joy, the very joy of life is withered away. It's a very uplifting book, right? It's a great way to start. Everything you know it, destroyed. Joy is withered away. Do you see this in our world? Does it sound familiar? Offices are closed. Schools are virtual. Trips are being canceled. 
trick-or-treating looked way different last night, although we did score on some candy. Everything in your life has been changed. Everything in your life has been touched by it. And there's even waves, first wave, second wave. What are we on the third or fourth wave? Everything is coming. We are sitting very similarly to what Joel is talking about. And guess what? There is nothing you can do to avoid this. We tried staying in Hawaii. We were hoping to get quarantined. That's a terrible place to be quarantined, right? We couldn't. Nothing can stand in the way of this. The reality is bad things will happen. You can try and prevent these things from happening to you. You can eat the right diet, go completely plant-based, work out three hours a day, have the best VO2 and your heart rate thing is great. You might still die of a heart attack. Sometimes you can't avoid things. We can, we can, uh, deve we can develop cancer in the youngest most healthy person can develop cancer. You can diversify your stock portfolio. Do everything that Warren Buffett and Dave Ramsey tell you to do. And it could still be decimated by one bad week on the stock market. You can lead your company in sales and still be laid off. You could wear a mask. You can isolate. You can bathe yourself in sanitizer and still get COVID. You can take all the defensive driving classes you want. And you're still going to get rear-ended. It's not that we have to go out and search for troubles. Troubles have their way of finding us. There is still trouble coming. You can't avoid it. And this is what Joel is saying. You can build your idea, your ideal life around this idea of being safe. But the more you get to it, safety is a myth. There's life happening. We live in a fallen world where disease and sickness and bad things happen. And you can't avoid it. It's almost not if they happen. It's when they happen. And Joel is doing something interesting here. In other prophetic books, there's always this statement. They say, if you do this, you'll avoid this. If you repent, you're going to avoid uh, God's judgment. But there's no if-then statement in Joel. All he's saying is like, hey guys, it's coming and you can't avoid it. The other signpost that we see in Joel is the cause of the problem isn't always the concern. Because we can't timestamp anything around Joel's life when he wrote this. There's a 500 year window of when Joel possibly lived. We can't timestamp it. So we don't know what actually is causing this. We can assume that there was some sort of sin that was thing that was done, but there's never in, in Joel, nothing is mentioned about anything specific. And we love to do this, right? When something bad happens, we like to triage it and say, what caused me to do this? What caused this bad thing to happen? What did I do wrong? What should I have done? And most importantly, who do I blame? Because I never want to blame myself. Who do I blame for all of these things happen? Joel doesn't do this, which is odd. Other prophets do, but Joel doesn't. When we go through times like this, when our orderly life dips into chaotic life, we look for a reason. And Joel reminds us that that's not all the time, that's not the best way 
to get through it. When Carrie and I were first married, uh, it was, again, there's something about Hawaii in us, but we got back from our honeymoon in Maui. We came back and it was like someone unloaded a truckload of stuff onto us. Relationships that we had, friendships weren't there anymore. Uh, we lost our jobs pretty quickly after everything that were, some of our hopes were dashed. We experienced miscarriage and it was just this thing of like, everything happened at once. So much for this, you know, first year of wedding bliss. And we sat around our couch one night and went, what did we do wrong? Did we mess up? And so we started thinking, was there like this unconfessed sin that was in our lives? Is this some sort of punishment? Uh, we thought we could circle back and maybe undo some of the things that we can undo in order to get right again. Like, okay, what did we do wrong? Let's fix it. And it was exhausting. Have you ever been there? You try and start thinking, well, if I would have prayed more, Maybe if I read my Bible more, maybe if I would have joined a small group, none of this stuff would have happened. And so you start trying to, to research and triage, why did this happen? And then what ultimately ends up happening is you get so focused on finding the, the cause to the issues that are plaguing you, and then you lose sight of what God is trying to do during the plague. Because you're trying to find the source, you're trying to find the reason. And God is saying the same thing he says through Joel, you can't find this reason. Don't worry about the cause. That's not your concern. The concern is what you're going to do through it. What is God doing through this? What is God doing through the plague? When you start to look at the cause, you lose your perspective of what God is doing. This also presupposes this idea that God is this vengeful, angry God that is waiting to send punishment on us to smite us for something we did wrong. And that's not true. Later in Joel, he's one of the only prophets that say God is merciful and kind and long-suffering. So all of the stuff that he's writing about isn't because God is angry it's because these things happen. Stop trying to find the cause to this. Our society does this. Remember some of us, 9-11? All of a sudden we're trying to figure out what did we do wrong that God would send these airplanes? Or when a massive hurricane happens, what did we do wrong to sin that Hurricane Katrina can come wipe out New Orleans? What are all of these causes to do this? There's nothing. That's not God's judgment. Things happen. God's judgment is this in Romans 1. He says that God gave them up. It's a phrase that's used over and over in Romans 1. And what that means is the judgment of God isn't this natural calamity always. Sometimes God will use natural calamities. But Romans tells us that God's judgment is giving you exactly what you want. You want to be the Lord of your own universe? There you have it. You can be the Lord of your own universe. And you will reap the consequences for that. You want to be the center of everything? Here you go. You're going to be the center of everyone's attention. And guess what? People are going to be annoyed with you. You want to live your life as if there's no consequence to your choices? Here you go. The consequence to your choices is that you get to pretend that there's no consequence to your choices and your life will go to ruin. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. God gives you up. Isaiah tells us that what God does for judgment is simply remove his protection from you. And so you get exactly what you wish. This is the God's judgment. God doesn't send every chaotic punishment. On the other hand, he will sure use them. 
So the question is, why isn't God doing, the question is not, why is God doing this to us? The question should be, what is God going to do through this? What is God going to do after this? How is God going to use this chaotic situation in the middle of my life to bring me closer to him? Though he didn't author it, he'll change the story about it. What is God going to do in the middle of your chaos and and to redeem it, to bring you closer to him? When we argue, when we stew over the past, we miss the lessons that we should be learning in the present. We want to interpret our times, not for our own knowledge, but for our own comfort. And this is that's not the point of this. What is God going to do through it? For Carrie and I, we came to this conclusion. We can't figure out why all of these things are happening until we got through it. And then we realized, wow, God was shielding us from a lot of pain. In the middle of the chaos, God was still protecting us. Things that we thought were the right moves for us, things that we hoped for, it turned out that, man, if we would have went that way, we would have been decimated. We would have been horribly disappointed. We would have been really, really hurt. But if we were still looking for the cause, we would have never seen God's hand. We learned that God's chaotic times is what God uses as lesson plans. God's lesson plan is, okay, I'll show you through this. So the last signpost that Joel gives us is, are you learning something here? Or are you too busy complaining about something here? Are you comprehending or are you complaining? Look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Hear this and the word listen are two Hebrew words that show up a multitude of times in the Old Testament. And whenever they're around, they say simply pay attention. It's the word Shema, hear, and the word the other one means to, to give ear, and that are used in the prophetic text. Pay attention to this. Hear this. Listen to this. It's my mom going, <clears throat> that's my mom's uh, voice for pay attention, Brad. <clears throat> pay attention to this. Hear this. Listen to this. Joel is saying, look, you don't have the answers right now. Pay attention. You're going to have to learn something new. Stop pretending like you know all the answers. The elders of the church, the elders of the community, stop pretending. Stop acting like know-it-alls. You've never seen any like this either. Pay attention. God's doing something. It's not a warning to go through, it's, or it is a warning to go through this time without arrogance, without being a know-it-all. And it's permission to us saying, I have no idea what's going on. And there's something freeing about that. I don't know how this is going to go. None of us do. And when you get to that point, you've reached the point that you're going to be teachable through this. One of the things my dad said whenever he dropped me off at any kind of practice I was going to was be teachable. And until about high school, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Be teachable. Be moldable, he meant. Take wisdom in. Take other opinions in. Don't shield yourself and think that you have it all put together. Learn something. Be constantly learning something. And especially in the time of chaos, be learning. What is God trying to teach you? 
None of us have been through this, but all of us will go through this. And as we go through it, we'll learn some things about ourselves and we'll learn some things about our God. That he will sustain us. God uses all situations to bring us towards himself, including this one. So the question for us as we study Joel, as we study our lives, is are we paying attention or are we too busy complaining? Are we too busy posting? Are we too busy hitting the share button? Are we too busy pontificating? Are we too busy allowing our pride to drown out the voice of God? Maybe it's time for all of us to pause and pardon the word, but shut up. Listen, listen to the voice of God in your life. Listen to the way he's moving around you. See it, learn something. And in order for us to learn, we all have to be quiet. I've found that often I need the humility to learn. I need to be honest and say, I don't know, but we'll find out. God will bring us through this. Before all of this happened in my life, I was, I, before all of this was going on, Carrie and I were like in this situation, we were like, what can we remove from our lives in order to live simply? We were really busy. And then we thought, oh yeah, we watch too much sports. Um, no, that's not it. Uh, we, we spend too much time on our devices. Uh, we have so many commitments everywhere. And we were thinking, what can we give up? We do this every anniversary of ours. We kind of do a little inventory. And we got back from Hawaii and we're like, apparently everything. But then we're learning a lot about ourselves. I wish we had more control over what we could have given up, what we could have removed, but this wasn't my idea. But through this time, I've learned how much I was relying on distractions to get me through my life. I've learned that I was really frustrated at a lot of things that I shouldn't have been frustrated at. I learned that there was a lot of anger in me. I learned that there were some things that I was still sad about. I learned how much I, I, I looked at entertainment to distract me from all of this. The thought of nothing to do tortured me because the silence in my life wasn't there. And I was afraid of what I would hear if I silenced some things. So through this time, I've been learning to be quiet, to not instantly put on distractions. What has God been showing you through this time? What are the lessons that you've learned? How has God shown up here? Perhaps it's revealed that who you're relying on, you shouldn't have relied on in the first place. Maybe it's shown you that you need to take time to grieve some things. Maybe it's shown you that you do have anger issues. Maybe it's shown you that you have this addiction and you need to get past it, and you need help to get through it. What are you learning? And it's important to us that we stop denying this, stop running from it, stop creating or casting blame, and learn these things. Because if you come out of this quarantine season of ours the same way you went in, you didn't miss the point, you missed the opportunity. If God uses all of these situations for you to grow closer to him, you miss prime opportunity to do it. What are we learning from this? Joel suggests this, that in the middle of our chaotic times, we learn to worship. And that seems totally weird, right? 
Why would I worship God in the middle of chaos? Why the heck would I do that? But look what Joel says, verse 13. Put on sackcloth, you priest. Sackcloth was like a burlap bag. Put it on and mourn, wail. You you who minister before the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth. You who minister before God, for the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders, all who live in the land, to the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. This idea that Joel is talking about is worship, but it's worship through this thing that we throw around a lot, this word, but it's worship through lament. Now, I'll be honest, when I first started hearing about lament, I just thought, it's a bunch of people sitting in a room complaining. And I don't want any part of that. That's not lament. Lament isn't complaint. Lament is a form of praise. Two-thirds of the Psalms that are in our Bibles are laments. And we call them praises. There's a difference between a lament or a complaint and a praise. A complaint in Scripture comes from an absence of relationship. In Exodus, the people of Israel are walking out of, the, out of Egypt and they complain that they didn't have water, that they didn't have meat, that they were hot in the middle of the desert. They're complaining about something. It's a lack of relationship that they had with their God. They didn't know God yet. And so they're complaining. A lament comes from a place of relationship. When you appeal to the character of God, and this is what David does in the Psalms, he appeals to God's character. When we lament, we're not complaining. We're voicing our opinions, and it's proof of a relationship. God, this is happening. Why is it happening? That's okay to ask. You're not complaining. You're appealing to God. You have a relationship with God, and you're simply asking him, why is it, why is it like this? That's okay. Every Saturday morning is pancake day at the Thayer household. I make pancakes, bacon, and I like to throw eggs in there, but everyone else is happy with pancakes and bacon. But this is what happens. I'm usually cleaning things up, getting ready to make the pancake breakfast, and Judah comes up. My five-year-old next in a couple weeks says, Daddy, what time are the pancakes going to be ready? Wow, that's bold. I can see that as he's complaining that the pancakes aren't ready. He's not. He's coming to me because there's a relationship between he and I, and he's saying, Dad, I'm hungry. When are the pancakes going to be ready? That's proof of a relationship. If he didn't know me, if there was no relationship, he'd sit back in the corner and go, stupid pancakes aren't ready yet. No, lament is us going boldly before the throne of God, proving the relationship that we have with him and saying, God, we're hungry. Where are the pancakes? We know that all the pancakes come from you. You're a good God. This is your character. You provide pancakes and syrup. God, where are the pancakes? That's a relationship that's having. We can go before God and tell him our need. Lament is coming from a place of need. Lament is also a prayer for God to, ha- to act. It's, like we're, it's not that we're just airing our grievances. In the Psalms, the, many of the laments call for God to act. In fact, petition or asking is a part of lament. Do you remember the words hear and listen? 
Pay attention. In the Psalms, it's used over and over for, for David asking God, please pay attention to what's going on here. And then what's David do? He appeals right to God's character. And then he says, move and act, God. Please. Laments are God's, are our way of asking God to move in our situation. Lament isn't our final prayer either. Lament is a prayer in the meantime. It's a prayer that ends with praise. It's a prayer that ends with us looking forward to God's deliverance because the story of redemption doesn't end in our sorrow. Jesus shows us that the story of chaos doesn't end there. Even though the song might be in minor key now that we're living, one day it's going to resolve to a major chord. Even when every tear is wiped away, as Revelation tells us, when every death is swallowed up in victory, when the heavens and earth are made new, this is what we lament for. And so today, as we enter into this time where there's bound to be more chaos in our lives, what do we worship God with? We can't control that they come. We, can't, we don't know why they came. But the posture that our hearts have during these chaotic moments should be worship. And so today, as you walked in, you were given, a, I call them a communable, because it's communion in a package, like a Lunchable. For those of you at home, please join us. Go to your kitchen, grab some kind of carbohydrate and a beverage, bread, and water. If you didn't get a communion supply when you walked in, today we're going to take communion together. It's different than we normally do. But when we do, I want you to take in front of God your lament. God, why? I, I don't know why this is happening, but why is it happening? And appeal to him, Lord, this is happening and I know your character. Base your prayer in his character. When is this going to end? Lord, show yourself in the middle of my, tar middle of my trial, in the middle of my sorrow. May I see you. And then our communion is the source of hope. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can have hope in the middle of our trials that we're not going to be left in the grave. There's hope beyond this. And so on one side of your communable, if you rip open the top, you can put this trash thing somewhere. We'll, we'll either pick it up or you pick it up. And it's okay to take your mask off now because we're all eating. Is the bread. The night before Jesus was crucified, he said, take this, this bread. As often as you eat it, remember that my body was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus, we remember the cross. We remember your body broken for our sin so that we might have relationship with you. And that same night, he took the cup and he said, this wine represents my blood, which is shed for your sins. As often as you drink it, now this is grape juice, not wine. I don't know what you have at home. I guess you can have wine. He says, as often as you drink this, remember me. Jesus, we remember your blood and your sacrifice for our sins that we might have hope.
we remember that you want to bring us through these trials in our lives. You don't want to help us diagnose the reasons why, but you say, I'll walk you through it. Psalm 77 says that your way, God, was through the midst of the water, the scariest thing in our lives. Your way went through there. And we follow, even though we can't see your footsteps. And Lord, as many of us stand in front of our biggest fears of relationships crumbling, of jobs changing, of sickness running rampant through our families, Lord, we stand there and we say, God, we don't know why this is happening, but it's happening. And Lord, will you take us through this? Will you take us through our fears? Will you escort us to the other side of this water? Will you take us from our order through our chaos and establish us in our reorder of life? And in the middle of that all, may our relationship with you deepen. May we worship you when we can't see. In Jesus' name, amen.